You can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Several years ago, the British actor Michael Wilding was asked if there was uh, any characteristic of actors that kind of set them apart from other people in the world, and this was his response. He said, without a doubt, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Now, Oscar Wilde once said, come over here and sit next to me. I'm dying to tell you all about myself. Enough about you. Let's talk about me. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that in terms of this passage this week, the greatest enemy to our own personal spiritual growth, to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, is ourselves. Greatest enemy to the gospel moving out from this body of believers into the community, uh, it's us. When we are preoccupied with ourselves, when you're preoccupied with yourself and I'm preoccupied with myself, then we're not united. And if we're not united and there is division and dissension within the church, then the reputation of Christ within the church is damaged, and the gospel doesn't go out. People don't want to hear the message that we have to say. We've been studying this book of Philippians, and uh, sometimes we forget it's actually, it's not a book, it's a letter. It's, it's a short letter, and it's a, it's a highly personal letter. And when it was written and then delivered, someone stood up in front of a small group of people, and read this letter. And they read it from the beginning to the end. And we come week after week, and we'll read a few of the verses, and then we'll stop, we'll close it, and then we pick it up again. And so we, we lose the flow, we lose the context. So I want to put us back in context, okay? Remember, this is a group of believers, it's probably a fairly small group of believers, and it's, they're really doing very, very well. It's a very healthy church in many respects, The man who's writing the letter, the Apostle Paul, he's in prison. His circumstances are not good, and yet, amazingly, he is overwhelmed with joy. He is filled with joy, and there are two primary reasons that he is filled with joy. The first is progress in the faith. Second is the progress of the faith. He is filled with joy because these believers are going on in the faith. They are growing in maturity, and he's seeing it in their lives. He's seeing the fruit of God's Spirit more and more and more in their lives. He's seeing progress in the faith. He's also seeing the progress of the faith. They're committed to being partners in the gospel. That's where we started this book, that they are participants. They have fellowship in the gospel. They have fellowship financially, but also they're taking risks And they're sharing their faith. They're living for Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that hates Jesus Christ. And so Paul sees the gospel going out from them. He sees a really, really healthy church, kind of a a prototypical church. But as he looks at them, he also sees the possibility that that there's some dangerous things that are slipping in. And there's a little bit of of self-centeredness and self-absorption, self-preoccupation that's beginning to slip into this church. And so he wants a, to issue, in a sense, a preemptive strike. You know, he wants to warn them that unless they are unified in their love for Jesus Christ, the gospel will not, not go out from them. Remember, that was Jesus' primary uh, concern and plea for his church. Let me read to you here from John chapter 17 as he was praying for the church in verse 20. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is, remember these 11 disciples, but for those who believe in me through their word. Who's that? the Philippian believers and Grace Bible Church. He said, I don't ask just for you 11. I don't ask just for the Philippian believers and I'm not asking just for Grace Bible Church, but even those who will hear the word from Grace Bible Church in the years 
to come. This is what I pray, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, I pray that you would create a unity in them that is reflective of the very nature of the Trinity, so that the world would look at them and they would say, ah, that's what God is like. That's what God is like. People should look at the way we live, not just as individuals, but at the way that we interact as Christians, and they should say, that's what God is like. And so Paul's just suspicious, a little concerned that a disunity that's not reflective of the unity of the Trinity, maybe that's slipping into that, this church. He writes and he exhorts them. I want us to read together, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul exhorts them to remember the gifts that they have from Jesus Christ. This this first verse, it really is, it's rhetorical. In my translation, it says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. uh, It's rhetorical. It could read since. He's saying these things are yours, in fact. Uh, There's there's a hint of uh, just a little bit of uh, Pauline humor in this. He says, if there's any whatsoever, if if you've experienced any encouragement in Christ whatsoever, if if there's been any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. And Paul knows, in fact, that there is. They have experienced this. These are four things that Jesus Christ has deposited in this church. They have experienced it. First, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that word for encouragement, same word that we get for the, the Holy Spirit being our comforter. And comfort's probably even a better translation here. If there's any, any comfort that comes from the fact that you are in Jesus Christ. A similar idea is expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, they had begun to experience sufferings because they had begun to align themselves with Jesus Christ. And when you align yourself with Jesus Christ and you begin to suffer for Jesus Christ, there is a supernatural and a mystical comfort that you experience from Christ that you don't know otherwise. And Paul says, I know that you have begun to experience this because I know that you've begun to align yourself with Jesus Christ. I know this is true of you. There's been encouragement in Christ. There has been consolation of love, or better, consolation from love. From the love that God has poured out upon you. Romans 5, similar context again, he says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In the context of Romans, it's the same idea. These Roman believers have begun to suffer. Paul's talking in Romans chapter 5 about tribulation. He said, even in tribulation, we are exalting, we're boasting 
about our tribulation. We are praising God. We're experiencing joy in our tribulation. Why? Because God has poured out love into our hearts. Remember when we were back in Philippians chapter one, we talked about this kind of love. This is agape love. It's not sentimentality. It's not warm feelings. It is the fact that God acts on our behalf always for our best. And Paul says, if you've experienced even a little bit of this, which I know that you have. Third, if there's been any fellowship of the Spirit, and here's our word. Again, Paul's bringing back a lot of these same words that he started the book with. This is a a koinonia, participation. If you have experienced participation in the Spirit, which I know you have. In a parallel passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See how Paul ties all three of those together. He's talking about the very ministry of the Trinitarian God in your midst because you have aligned yourself with his son, Jesus Christ. I know that you're getting it. If there's even a hint of this, if any affection and compassion, and these words, both of these, affection and compassion, in the Old Testament are attributed to God. When people wanted to know the very essence of the personality of God, two words that God used to describe himself were affection and compassion. He feels deeply for his people. God loves you. Sometimes I try, to, I try to sit and I imagine, God, what are you thinking of me right now? God, how do you feel about me right now? I can tell you, this is how God feels about you right now. He longs for you and he longs for more of you. What God feels for you at this very moment is affection and compassion. Remember we talked about this. It's, it's being moved to the deepest part of your being where, in God's words, feeling comes from, he's moved toward you. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's the source. He's the source of all mercy, compassion, comfort, and affection. This is how God feels toward you. This is completely rhetorical. Paul says, man, my friends, if you have experienced any of these things, if there's any encouragement that you've experienced in Jesus Christ at all, if there's any consolation from experiencing his love, if any fellowship or participation in his spirit that dwells in you, if any affection, compassion, remember, I'm sitting here in prison. Give me a good day. (laughs) Let me have a good day, and this is how you can make my day great. Be unified with one another. Look at verse 2, his exhortation, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, make my joy complete. I fill up my joy. I have joy right now. I have joy because the gospel is going out. But boy, you can add to that joy. They fill it up. Make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul basically says uh, four of the same things. He describes our unity in four different terms. And he talks about things that either uh, promote that unity or things that uh, tear it apart, that destroy it. In describing our unity, he talks about having the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And there's one word that's used actually four times in this short paragraph, uh, and it's the word for uh, mindset or orientation. 
I want you to keep your place here in Philippians with me and turn to Romans chapter 5. Excuse me, Romans 8, Romans 8 verse 5. Paul says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, let's do a quick aside on uh, interpreting Romans chapter 8. The prepositions are the most important thing to understand, Romans chapter 6 through 8. Some of us don't even know what prepositions are. So uh, let me tell you, uh, it's like in, of, for, that kind of thing. they're, They're really tricky. When you learn a new language... Probably the most difficult thing to learn about a language is how a preposition functions because it's just, we just know it because we grew up with a language. Greek is no different. He talks about some people being in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you're not a Christian. If you're in the spirit, you're a Christian because the spirit is in you also. That's the definition of what it means to be in. Now, as a Christian... You make a choice every day, every minute of every day. Are you going to walk, that is live, according to the Spirit? Are you going to walk consistently and in line with the Spirit? Or are you going to walk according to the flesh? Are you going to listen to the flesh and your life is going to be in line with the flesh? Those are your two choices. So notice, let me read it to you again. He says, Those who are according to the flesh, they're listening to the flesh, they're walking the flesh's way, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are walking according to the Spirit and listening to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. It should read like this, the mindset of the flesh, that should be one word, the mindset of the flesh is death, okay? That word for mindset means orientation, preoccupation, fixation. The flesh has just one orientation or fixation, and it is completely anti-God. And so if you're walking according to the flesh, you're obeying the flesh, you are oriented completely opposite of God, you're walking away from God. If you're walking according to the Spirit, you are completely preoccupied and fixated upon the things of God. It is an obsession. I'm obsessed with the things of the flesh or I'm obsessed with the things of the spirit. If I'm obsessed with the things of the spirit, that is life, meaning fellowship with God. If I'm obsessed with the things of the flesh and I'm walking according to the flesh, that is death, that is the absence of fellowship with God, that is alienation from God. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, every day, every moment, you make a decision, where will I be oriented What will be the preoccupation of my life? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is saying, I want this mind to be in you, and that is a preoccupation with exactly the same thing. You all have a unity of preoccupation, and it is Jesus Christ. Look back in Philippians chapter 2 again. Let's read this one more time. He says, make my joy complete. And what gives Paul joy? The progress of the faith in them personally, the progress of the faith going out from them to others. 
So make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, having exactly the same preoccupation, orientation, obsession, maintaining the same love. That is, you have the one same love. Okay, toward one another, which is the love that you've received from Jesus Christ, you are pursuing one another's best. United in spirit, literally uh, he talks about being uh, one-souled together, intent on one purpose. You are all completely oriented the same direction. Unity is all of us sharing the same obsession. And that is to know Jesus Christ and through us to make sure that everyone around us knows him as well. And when we are preoccupied with Christ, our minor differences begin to fade away. Paul says that's what a healthy church is about. That is unity. Unity is not, in other words, coming together based upon superficial differences. Unity is not based upon hobbies that we share. Those things may attract us to one another. We begin to develop a friendship. But that's not the basis of unity. Unity is not always even getting along. Unity doesn't mean that we never hurt one another's feelings or there's never conflict. Conflict happens. Sometimes conflict happens because we're fallen and we need to learn how to seek forgiveness and how to grant forgiveness. And we're going to talk about that more when we hit Philippians chapter 4. There are a couple people who are fighting in the church and Paul's going to urge somebody, hey, step in and help them resolve that. Sometimes, uh, you, you know, that, that happens. Even in a unified group, we hurt one another's feelings. Sometimes we have conflict just because that's what sharpens us. We learn how to, how to disagree agreeably and be sharpened and learn from one another. That, that's, that's not uh, what unity is about. Unity means we are all pursuing Jesus Christ, and as a result, we are able to forgive. We're able to work out these disagreements. We're able to learn from one another because we respect one another. But Paul's point is unity is an incredibly fragile thing because we are all so self-centered. Every morning you wake up and the flesh is just knocking at the door saying, walk this way. Be obsessed with the things of the flesh. And the Spirit is whispering, no, no. Walk this way. Walk according to the Spirit. Be of one mind, Paul says. Unity is having exactly the same orientation in life. What Paul's going to go on to do is he's going to talk to us about things that can uh, promote and bring health and unity and things that cause that unity to completely come unraveled. Look in the next verse, verse 3. Actually, let's, let's get context again. Start in verse 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do absolutely nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul lists several things, some positive, some negative. Let's walk through them quickly. He says, first, don't have selfish ambition. Same term that was used earlier of those who were preaching Christ, but they were doing it because they wanted to make a reputation for themselves and they wanted to cause Paul pain. Paul says, don't do anything. Don't do anything for selfish ambition. Do absolutely nothing. 
He doesn't say, okay, 20% of your day, that's okay. Pursue selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. That's a huge statement. We'll have to figure out how we do that later. Uh, Do nothing from empty glory, literally. Okay, vain vain ambition, empty glory. Uh, You know, there's there's something in all of us. We want we want glory. We want a life that's full and rich. He said, but but don't do it in things that are that are empty. This week earlier, I was talking to Susan. She's my my assistant and. She's asking me to describe somebody, and I said, uh, you know, I think they're about middle age. They're middle age, and then all of a sudden I realized, that's me. Hey, I'm in that category now, you know? I mean, really, literally, if I think, uh, if I doubled my age right now, I don't know that I'll, I'll get another doubling here. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably ra- around that middle time. I don't have much time left. It's, it's being shortened. And I want to get to the end of my life and I want to hear Jesus Christ say, well done. I don't want to hear him say, empty. Empty. You live for something that was just a waste. Paul tells us, this is what matters. To know Jesus Christ. To grow, to progress in the faith. To see that the gospel goes out from you. Whatever you do, vocationally, whatever family he's placed you in. To know him and to make him known. He goes on and gives us a couple of positives. He says, uh, have a, a humble mindset. A, a mind that, uh, and he uses the same word for mindset, this orientation that is uh, lowly. Okay? Uh, literally a, a lowly mind, which interestingly, in Greek culture, this was considered a weakness. A bad character quality was to be humble in mind. That was bad. And we talked about the paradoxes of Christianity. Paul says, no, it's good. The Greek culture all around said, no, bad. You don't want to be that kind of person. Paul says, no, this is the good mindset because this is having the mind of Christ. He was gentle and literally lowly of heart. Consider others as more important than yourself. Humility is not. We always have to keep this in mind. Humility is not a poor self-image. Humility is not saying, oh, I'm so worthless. Okay, that's actually believing a lie because you're not worthless. You are made in the very image of God. You have incredible value to God. That's why Jesus Christ died for you. You are valuable. Being humble doesn't mean putting yourself down or thinking poorly of yourself. Humility means getting as low as you possibly can so that you can lift others up and promote them and exalt them and lift them up toward Jesus Christ. Regard others as more important than than yourself. See them as well as creatures made in the image of God. Not self-absorbed. Look in verse 4. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't be self-occupied, self-absorbed, but be preoccupied with others and with their needs. How is this possible? This is a a uh, very stark statement, isn't it? Do nothing from selfishness. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, also for the interests of others. Uh, regard one another as more important than yourself. How do we possibly pull that off? Okay, I want you to hang with me for a second. I'm going to give you an illustration. And uh, as I start this illustration, you're going to think, where in the world is he going? But it'll make sense by the end, okay? Um, I don't like cake, really. 
Uh, you know, for birthday time, that's unfortunately the American tradition. They make cakes. I don't like cake. I never, it doesn't really grab me. I like pie. Okay? And I especially, I like fruit pies. That's what I really like. And my favorite fruit pie is blueberry. I love blueberry pie. I, you know, if, if my mom ever asked me when I was growing up, what would you like for your birthday? You know, a lot of kids, oh, chocolate cake, whatever. No, I want pie. I'm a weird kid. I want, and I want blueberry pie. That's what I love, blueberry pie. And I'll tell you, when my mom would make me a blueberry pie, I didn't want to share my pie. <laughs> really, I really, I, I didn't. I did not want to share my pie because something wonderful about blueberry pie is that if it waits even a day, it gets better because the blueberry juice soaks into the crust some. And so, you know, she's cutting up pie and passing it out. And I'm thinking, what's going to be left for me tomorrow? It's my birthday. That's my pie. I don't want to share my pie. And so this week I was imagining, what if, what if she could make for me an ever-expanding pie? So that every time I took a piece out of that pie and I gave it to somebody else, the actual size of the pie got bigger. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be awesome? You see the point of the illustration? No. Oh yeah, probably... <laughs> That's how life is in Christ. It's another one of those amazing paradoxes. You take a piece out of your pie and you give it to somebody else on behalf of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, let me make your pie bigger. He stretches your capacity to love and to give. You turn on the faucet and then somewhere upstream, he opens the dam. And it begins to flow. Okay, that's how life in Christ works. It is an amazing paradox, and you don't know it until you try it. And so what does Paul do? He points us to Jesus. He says, let me give you the perfect illustration. It is Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 may have been a hymn in the early church that they sang. And it is one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture. I want us to, uh, we're going to read it together. I don't have a, a tune made up, so we'll just read it together, okay? I want you to uh, follow along with me. And I've, I've changed a few of the phrases just to make it corporate for us, okay? Let's begin. Let us have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. A couple years ago, Tristy wanted to change some things in our house. She wanted to remodel. And she started describing it to me. And she got this wonderful blank look from me. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't understand. So what she did is she went and she found some magazines that had pictures of what she wanted to do. And, and you go, okay, now I'm starting to get it. And uh, then... Uh, she took me to this really fancy um, furniture store called Ikea. <laughs> and we walked through and they have little rooms set up. You know, and you walk in the room, you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Okay, 
Because my brain doesn't think that way. I've got to see it. And what Paul does in the letter of Philippians, he says, you know, you're, this is beyond probably anything you've really experienced or seen. So let me give you a picture. I'm going to point you to Jesus. And then he's going to point us to, to two other men who really do this well, who live well, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then Paul's going to say, and I do this in my own life. Let me show you a visual. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. I want you to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Same word for attitude. I want you to have this orientation, this preoccupation, this obsession. I want you to have the same mindset that Christ had. What is that mindset? Verse five, he says, have this mindset or this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, One of the things that we have to always remember about Jesus is he was not insecure. Jesus didn't have problems with uh, inferiority. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Notice, who, although he existed in the form of God, that word for existed is a present tense participle. It means he always was God. It's pointing to Jesus Christ's pre-existence. Now, this whole section here, uh, it's all about Jesus, and, and uh, the point is, Paul is showing us Jesus' example, but there's so much theology in it. What I've asked uh, it, it, Buck Anderson to do is I've asked Buck to come next week, and he's going to just go back through a theology of Jesus Christ, because we can't cover all that this morning. This morning, though, I want to point out just a few things. First, Jesus Christ is preexistent. He always existed. As God, this word in my translation says in the form of God. That's a, that's a bad translation. The problem is there's not a good English word for it. Uh, form implies that there's just something external that kind of appears like God. But what it means is having the very essence of, or nature of God. He always existed as God. He knew exactly who he was. Beautiful illustration of this is in John chapter 13. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. I love this story because I, I, I can picture it in my mind's eye. Judas sitting there as well. And they wear sandals. And their feet are dusty and dirty and nasty. And none of them has the humility to get down low and scrub feet. And so the master, the teacher, at the end of the meal, nobody washed. They should have washed before the meal. Nobody has washed. Jesus puts on the servant's towel and he gets down and he goes from toe to toe to toe to toe. 120 toes. That's a lot of dirt. And before he does that, John makes this statement. It says, Jesus Christ, knowing that God had given all things into his hands. Knowing that he had come forth from God to the earth, that he was going back to God. And knowing that he was the creator of that dust and of those toes, knowing that he would be the ruler over absolutely everything, being the sovereign of the universe, I can scrub a foot. See, when you and I don't have a, a really powerful sense of who we are in Jesus Christ and how valuable we are to Jesus Christ, we will not serve. Or if we do serve, we serve to get glory back. But when we know exactly who we are, then you can treat me like a servant. That's okay, because I know that I'm a son of God. 
and it doesn't crush me. But if I'm insecure, it's going to be hard to serve. And you see this in relationships all the time. You see it in marriages. People get married and, and they love one another and they're so drawn to one another because as they're dating, they're just giving and giving and giving and giving. How can I serve you? What can I do for you? Your favorite kind of flowers are roses. Let me buy you 70. And you know, I, it's just everything is just give, 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 give. And then they get married and they begin to realize, oh, it seems like as I give, that other person's taking I better step back a bit. And they begin to become guarded and guarded. And, and they realize, oh, and you don't know, marriage, marriage really is a 50-50 proposition and you're not giving your 50. I'm not going to give my 50. And pretty soon they're giving 40 and 40 and 20 and 20. And they have failed to realize, no, marriage only works when it's 100% and 100% and I'm going to give because I'm filled with Christ. And this person realizes, I can give because I'm filled with Christ. We come together and there's a wonderful bond and beauty in our humble service for one another. And that's why marriages, you know, in a very simple form, begin to break down. It's because we, we just we pull apart. We're guarded instead of giving. Okay? Jesus, creator of the universe, knew exactly who he was. And so he stoops low and these foolish, silly men who are going to run away from him and deny him, he washes their feet. He existed in the form of God. He was secure. He knew who he was. He understood what God-likeness meant because he was God. Look in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is a really hard uh, little verse or or phrase to translate. I'm going to give you a few options, and then I'll tell you what I think it means. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It could be he did not regard equality with God something that he didn't possess and he had to reach out and get it. Like he wasn't God, but he had to reach out and and get God-likeness. I don't think that's right. He was always and fully and eternally God. Could mean that he had God-likeness, but he felt like he really needed to hold on to it. I think it's better to look at it like this. That uh, he didn't consider God-likeness as a grasping thing. Okay, let me tell you what I mean by that. To be God, and God's nature and personality is to give. So Jesus did not consider his equality with God, his nature as God, as a grasping thing because God is not a grasping God. God is a giving God. Does that make sense? And I, I don't know if I can even convey this in words, but this really hit me hard this week. It just kind of came upon me in a fresh way. But the, the cross of Jesus Christ is the perfect and ultimate illustration of the very personality of God. It's not, a, it's not an isolated event by which your sins were forgiven and you're given eternal life. You look back at the cross and what you should see in the cross is this is the perfect illustration of what God is like. This is what God is like because God is a giving God. God just gives and he gives and he gives. God is totally unlike the pagan gods that they have been worshiping, which cling to power. They grasp, they take, they take. God is so unlike so many of us who we, we feel like we've got to protect and we're guarded. No, God, this is God. God gives. Jesus didn't regard equality with God, the nature of God, as a grasping thing because God is a giving God. This is who our God is. This is the God that we worship. And you have been made in his very likeness and image. What that means for you practically is when you are selfish, you will be disappointed. When you are grasping, you are going to find yourself completely disappointed in life. 
paradoxically. You're going to grasp because you're going to, you're going to think that that's going to make you fuller, but when you grasp and when you are preoccupied with yourself and when you are selfish, you will really dislike your life. Eventually, you'll get there and you go, I don't, ah, this is so unsatisfying. I'm getting more, but I feel emptier because you were made in the image of God and God is a giving God. This is who God is. And if you are willing to trust God and take a risk and begin to give and to give and to give, you're going to come upon those times where you're giving and you're giving and giving and someone else is just taking and taking and taking and it doesn't bother you. It actually gives you joy. You go, oh, oh I've, I've had those moments. You know, oh yeah, that's what it means to be like God. But they sure are taking a lot. Now, see, I can't stay there very long. You know, I just had a little glimpse into it. Oh, that's what God's like. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but it says, but he emptied himself. Paul doesn't mean he emptied himself of being God. He could not do that. It means he poured himself out. He chose not to exercise all of the rights that he had as God. He poured himself out. And he didn't cling to the rights of Godhead. Think about what Jesus gave up. All the comfort of being in heaven, all of the perfect fellowship of being with the Father always, all of the power, the power to create, the right to be worshipped, all the angels at all times bowing down and worshipping him. And instead, he came to earth and they spit on him and they kicked him and they punched him in the face and they jabbed spears into his side and they beat him and they put crowns of thorn on his head and he bled and he hurt and he suffered pain and he could have stayed in heaven. Or he could have, as he told Peter, I could have called 72,000 angels, Peter, to take care of these 20 Roman soldiers. I've got the power but I'm going to choose not to use it because that's the nature of God. He gives. He did that so that we could be reconciled to him. So he says he, he emptied himself. He poured out himself as God. And what he did was he took on something new. He took on human nature. Look with me again. Verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out, he emptied himself out. And what does that mean? He took on the form of a slave. And cross out bondservant again, please, and write slave in the margin. He took on the form of a slave. That word for form is the same as the word for form earlier. It means he took on the essential nature of, not an external quality, but he took on the essential nature of the lowest person in their society, which was a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, that is, he's saying he took on uh, everything that there is about humanity. He has the essential nature. He has the outward appearance. He is fully a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, or better, even a cross death. Okay, even a cross-like death. I want you to notice that Jesus chose to do this. Jesus was not subjugated by the Father. Jesus chose to submit himself to the Father. He chose to say, not my will, but yours be done. 
Someone can subjugate you or you might be able to subjugate someone else, but that doesn't produce a mutual love and affection. Jesus chose to surrender his will. He chose to surrender his life, even to the point of death, even a cross death. Cicero, the Roman writer, said this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. And yet Jesus said that is what God is like, and that is how valuable you are and how much I love you. And Paul says, I want you to take that example and do the same for one another. And the beauty of this is, that Jesus chose to say no to himself during this this short earthly life, the incarnation. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, and it was shameful. Because he knew that his father would take him and he would exalt him. Because he had chosen to serve. And Jesus wants to share that glory with us, but he said, hey church, this is the way it works. Right now, We suffer and we endure and we sacrifice for one another and in the future then we share the glory of Jesus Christ. Will you trust me that it's worth it? And Paul takes the example of Jesus Christ and says, this is how I want you to love one another. It's remarkable. It's supernatural. Pouring out yourself on behalf of others. And so what I'd like for us to do as we close, I'd like for you to to think, say, God, reveal in my mind, give me one way this week that I can pour myself out on behalf of someone else. Give me one way this week that as, as a person who is who's secure in you, loved by you, I can bend myself low and lift that person up. How, Father, can I sacrificially serve like Jesus Christ to help create unity in the body so that the gospel can go forth? Okay, let's ask the Lord to give us just one practical way we can do that this week and then I will close this in prayer. Father, we long to have lives that are not empty, but lives that are full. I pray that you would give us the faith to believe the paradox that when we pour ourselves out, you fill us up beyond what we can imagine. Pray, Father, that we would trust you, that we don't need to be grasping, but that you can fill our hands. I thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us through your cross how incredibly valuable we are to you. I pray, Father, this week that you would show us ways that we can very tangibly as people who are filled with Jesus, that we can, we can step into others' lives and we can humbly serve, that we can confidently put ourselves low and lift others up. I pray, Father, you'd create a unity through this body of believers that would be a beautiful testimony to the very nature of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. I pray, Father, that, that we would grow in the gospel and that the gospel would go forth from us. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.